from outer space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The from outer space. What's up, guys? It's another one from the podcast from outer space. We got Adam Narlock in the house. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. And as always, to try and Scott. Hello, everybody out there. And, you know, we're getting back to our roots tonight. We're getting back to uh, aliens, UFOs, that sort of thing. You know, extraterrestrials, if you will. Before we do hop into it, we wanted to go ahead and, you know, tip our caps, pour one out for the late, great Stan Lee. Yes, very sad news. And, you know, I think Adam wanted to say a couple, few words for him. Well, you know, just don't confuse the man with Spike Lee like they did in New Zealand. (laughs) Wow. Did you even have to go there, buddy? Hey. New Zealand. Hey. Down under. Hey. Segway right into yeah. it. Hey, you see how I did that? Hey, but uh, seriously, Stanley, one of the greatest. Um, never heard a bad word about the guy. Mm-mm. Not once. Um, so, you know, that's true testament of any. Well, there was that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm pretty sure he <laughs> made it on The Simpsons and The Big Bang Theory, so you know he did something right in life. Well. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, uh, as Rob said, it is back to another UFO episode. Now, this one in particular, pretty big deal. Um, this is, I believe, our first international UFO episode. Am I, am I right in that? Correct him if he's wrong. We are getting into the Tully UFO nest of 1966. Now, this whole thing came about, guys, strangely enough. I was re-watching Mel Gibson signs re-watching yeah signs mm. you guys remember this that movie? Like your first time seeing it <laughs> <laughs> you guys familiar with the m night Shyamalan film i'm familiar with how scared that it, you were the first time we saw it dude no what Gibson. that shit came out in 2002 right i think it was like 2005 it was 2002 i checked it before 2002 and, uh, <laughs> so what were you like sixth grade uh, sixth grade yeah. yeah i mean yeah I, I'm gonna say didn't really hold up that well. I'm gonna say, mm. and uh, there's some creepy alien parts in there still. <laughs> well, why don't you rewatch it? Let me know. <laughs> Circle back. Well, now, it uh, like you already did the job for me. Now, uh, this whole thing. I'm looking up. Uh, you know, M Night, great director. Mm. You're a big Mel Gibson guy. Um, You're getting back into his movies. No, Blazing not saddles. so much Mel Gibson. Oh well. Um, M. Night. I'm thinking, this guy had to do research. Um, So I start getting into crop circle rabbit holes. I start going down the rabbit hole. Now, I mean... How about crop circles? What do you you guys got on that? Any any, um, crop circle talk? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I think they're horse shit, and I've never seen them in real life. <laughs> there you go, right from the start, folks. And I remember when I was a young lad, you were the first person to tell me. I, it might have been after signs. I said, you know, crop circles. What's that all about? What is that? Uh, as I would always go to Rob right, if I big had a brother. question. Yep. yep. And he was telling me, hey, he knew. He was like, hey, the, you know, they were these circles. These guys made them with a board and some rope. Uh, the, these prankster guys, you know? He's he, mansplaining before it was Yeah, cool. and he kind of knew all the facts. Bro science at its, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at its uh, quintessential right there. It's quintessential bro science. Now, what, I mean, when was the first time? How did you pick up that knowledge? Did Dude, they give you a question. book when you became a big brother? Like, <laughs> yeah. how does this work? I, I, they, I'll be real. There's a lot of questions I've had that he's answered. Especially to, pertaining to sexual relations. How to explain things to your little brothers. Yeah. They just give you that book. And crop circles is in there. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole section. I mean, do I you, re- show you the book, do you even remember that at all? Yeah, I remember that. Okay. I'm just trying to remember where I heard that from. And, you know, I'm drawing a blank right now. But I think, you know, it just goes back to this has always been something that interests me. And I probably just, you know, did a little research myself probably scared me a little bit wanted to see if it was real or not a little research yourself back in 2002 on the floppy disk <laughs> all your crop circle <laughs> files now adam crop what about circles. you you're you're largely a by the book guy right. um you know official narrative guy um <laughs> our government shill in the hole yeah what are you thinking about crop circles um you know that whole sort of thing alien evidence that sort of thing if you will well, he's not always in the hole. That's an issue sometimes. 
Oh man, like I'd never really thought about crop circles until like growing up in Virginia, like middle school, high school and everything. There's a lot of farms around and everything. A lot of corn. A lot of, well, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about corn, but there's definitely fields and you're just like, hmm. What are in those fields? Yeah, man. Or like, uh, what's that haunted hayride right there in Strawbridge? I don't know, man. You always wonder what happens in those fields. Well, that was just rednecks scaring kids for 10 bucks a pop. Maybe rednecks making crop circles for 10 bucks a pop. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Come check out our crop circles. <laughs> 10 bucks a pop. I think you're kind of getting into more children of the corn territory right uh, there. That's another episode for another day. Okay. So getting into the subject at hand, right up top, want to cite a few sources. Project1947.com once again. Oldcropcircles.webly.com. UFOcasebook.com. And the Oz Files by Bill Schalker. Someone liked crop circles enough that they had to make their own website. Oldcropcircles.com. <laughs> hey, man. I mean, that was just where I got it from. They had a lot of cool stuff on that site. I believe it. Anyways. A lot of old stuff. <laughs> so, the Saucer Nest of Tolly. These are one of the best known accounts of an apparent UFO landing and one of the more compelling physical trace cases and undoubtedly the most famous circles, we'll call them, uh, before the modern era of crop circles came about. Because, I mean, crop circles, that whole thing, this didn't become a part of the ufology lexicon until uh, the late 70s. Circles before circles were cool. Yes, and the Tully saucer nest is so influential that even Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley Um, who essentially started the whole crop circle phase phenomenon back in 1978. Um, These two guys are allegedly responsible for more than 200 crop circles from 78 to 91, and they cite the Tully Nest as um, their initial inspiration. Now, when you say they're allegedly responsible for crop circles, they made the crop circles, or they're responsible for reporting on these? They claim, like, this is what... This is how we made them. These news people went out to a field and said, all right, prove it, assholes. And they made it like in front of them. And they kind of linked it back to them being responsible for more than 200. But, you know, that's all. That's neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. And we actually have a clip from when those news companies went out where they cite the Tully saucerness. Um, Listen to that now. I lived in Australia from 1958 to 66. And when I came home, uh, during their time in Australia, there was a report in their newspapers of a circular depression in a grass field in Queensland. And they immediately called it a UFO nest. In other words, it was where a UFO had landed. I've always been a bit interested in UFOs and sightings and that sort of thing. But when I came home in 66, I met Dave, who was a fellow artist. And we used to go venture out on Friday evenings and have a chat about watercolours and things and have a pint of beer. And um, one evening, summer evening, we saw a cornfield and I I remarked to him about this. And um, I said, why don't we put a circular depression in this cornfield the same as they had out in Australia? (laughs) Can we link that video to, is that going to be? Yeah, I can put the link in the description. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, these two old guys out here drinking beer. Fucking um, around in the cornfield. Yeah, these were like the original <laughs> pranksters. Um, these two British guys did did all these crop circles, and they kind of did it, you know, just fucking around, see if, um, if people would take the bait, and that they did. But, you know, getting back to the material at hand, um, let's get into the right mindset. Because for this episode, as we said before, first international case, we are sailing down and for this one, boys. So grab your Forsters. Or your Victoria Bitter, since they don't really drink Fosters, and a Vegemite sandwich as we head down to Tully, which is a small town in Queensland, Australia. Shout out David Beach, the homie down under. (laughs) uh, Just for some perspective, uh, in the 2016 census, Tully had a population of a little over uh, 2,300 people. We had more people than that in our high school. <laughs> so, yeah. And probably, this was in 2016, so probably much, much less back in the 60s. Also, fun fact, the town's like uh, claim to fame is a giant golden gum boot. The hell is um, a gum boot? Like a rain boot. They mm. call them gum boots down gum boots down, 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 down,
Yeah, and so they got this big giant boot out there now. So wet, you're gonna need a pair of gum boots when you go in there. Now, so I'm thinking, mid '60s. You know, we're in uh, middle of fucking nowhere, northeastern Australia. Uh, you know, right off the Gold Coast, mid '60s. Um, you think they're gonna have TV out there? Like, how fast did news spread? You know, we talked about this on our '40s episode. I mean, I know it's the '60s, but. Uh, you know, TVs in this farming community way up in Australia. It's the fucking epic, mate. They're playing didgeridoo still. It's <laughs> not that <laughs> far out. <laughs> no, dude, it's a middle of 2,300 people in 2016. They How got, many people do you think were in the 60s? I know, but I'm saying I feel like in 66, the TV was pretty big. Here? Yeah, maybe not in rural Australia. All they got is didgeridoos and <laughs> yeah, so like, wet it'll turn your fingers into raisins. Yeah, think about <laughs> it was like, so, you know, the spread of news, you just know what you heard. You know, just keep that in mind as we go through this one. Um, now, these are universally called the Tully Nests, um, though they were much closer to the small town of Yermo, which lies to the south of Tully. So no one knows where that is. <laughs> so that's uh, kind of similar to Roswell. Like it's only Roswell because that was the closest town. Like the sighting happened pretty far away, but Roswell was just the closest town. And Yurimo was very small, so they're saying, hey, Tully nests. Now the spot where the event took place is known as Horseshoe Lagoon. Uh, the lagoon is approximately 40 feet wide and about 90 feet across. The water in the lagoon at the time of the incident was about six feet deep, but was largely obscured by dense swamp and reed growth. These reeds were about a half inch thick and extended about two feet above the lagoon's surface. The floor of the lagoon is a clay-based soil, and, you know, there's isolated patches of trees found amongst the sugarcane fields that dominate the area, but for the most part, the area is flat land. Horseshoe Lagoon, where this happened, is it's kind of like a valley between um, two mountains, like um, to the north and south. But, you know, other than that, it's flat land, farmland, Super uh, wet. spread out. And yes, always wet. <laughs> so let's get right into it. The year is 1966. On January 19th, it's a calm, sunny day. At around 9 a.m. Summer day down there, right? Isn't that how that works? Yeah. A 28-year-old banana farmer named George Pedley is driving a tractor near Horseshoe Lagoon on the property of Albert Pennessy. Guys, what are we doing? Let's just go be banana farmers down in Australia. Maybe run into some UFOs. He's about 25 yards from the lagoon when George hears a hissing sound over the noise of the tractor. And in George's own words, he says... At first I ignored the sound, but suddenly I saw a spaceship rise at great speed out of Horseshoe Lagoon, about 25 yards out in front of me. It was a blue-gray about three meters across, about nine feet high. It spun at a terrific rate as it rose vertically about 20 meters high, then made a shallow dive and rose sharply, traveling at fantastic speed. It headed off southwesterly. I saw no potholes or antenna, and there was no sign of life either in or about the ship. So, you know, George looks up, he sees this object about 30 feet above the swamp, treetop level, he says. He was, it was large, gray, saucer-shaped, convex on top and bottom, and he said he was looking at it for about 30 seconds before it continued to rise and then flew out of his sight. Just like an E.T. Yeah. Now, he sees this, um, and he's turning the corner on his tractor, and he discovers at the spot beneath where the object had risen was a huge round cleared area in the swamp grass. The water in this area was slowly rotating and appeared to be completely cleared of reeds. So he sees this perfect circle completely cleared of all the reeds. George also reported that he noticed the presence of a sulfur smell in the area. So at this point, he's thinking, you know, what the hell? Uh, this is pretty crazy, but you know gonna go about my work that's not a ufo uh and uh this is actually like uh i was trying to find this a lot because really the only guy who's written a lot about this is uh bill chalker who did the oz files and there's this gap where i was trying to figure out what the hell he did 
because, you know, he's just driving around doing his banana farming, I guess. Um, so he sees this UFO, figures, fuck it, you know, whatever. That's weird, but... Um, I got some bananas I got. Yeah, there. there's this circle. Let me... Maybe I'm tripping, you know. I'll... I'll uh, you know, maybe that was something. Maybe my mind's playing tricks on me. Something like that. I mean, who knows? Um, so a few hours later at about noon... He returned to the lagoon for a second look. The scene had changed, and now the circular area was covered by a floating mass of green reeds that were swirled in a clockwise radial pattern, measuring about 30 feet in diameter. The lagoon, as we said, is located on the property of Albert Pennessy. Pennessy or Penessy? Pennessy. Okay. Now, the Pennessy family had lived on the property since 1947. And Albert's residence is about a mile to the north. Now, Albert Pennessy is a bit of an interesting guy himself, as uh, he had been farming in the area since the family owned the property back in 1947. Now, is he farming bananas, too? Uh, I don't believe so. Mm, However, eggplant farmer. he knew the local stories. You know, this wasn't the first UFO sighting near Tully. And it is even reported that Albert and his wife saw something on the property just before purchasing it back in 1947. One night, Albert reported seeing a large revolving beam of light that appeared to shine up from the sky some distance away. Yeah, that sounds like a spotlight. <laughs> That's, uh, we said there's multiple beams, so maybe I'm thinking a Siegfried and Roy type magic show. <laughs> 20th Century Fox. So, a new movie going on in Australia. He sees these beams revolving way off, um, and he climbs up on this shed to get a better view. And he saw what he says looked to him like. Looked like a battleship traveling across the sky. So, when it comes to these sightings, Albert had a pretty open mind. Um, you know, he saw a fucking battleship going across the sky. Great game. And so George goes back to Albert's house and is like, hey, you got to come check out this nest, you know. They go back to the lagoon and Albert not only looked at the nest, but he figured, fuck it. And he wades out into the water to get a closer look. Up close and personal. Now, this is Australia. So keep in mind, you know, you got fucking crooks, snakes. uh, Basically, anything can kill you down there, right? But as long as you got your gum boots on, you're going to be okay <laughs> treading out into the water. So he, this is an experienced bushman, you know. He says, fuck it. That's not a knife. Uh, I'm going to go out in the water. And so he goes out there, and he learned that the reeds were not bent over, but they were physically uprooted from the lagoon bed and swirled in the, in the floating mat on the surface of the water. And they could swim under this mass of reeds, and the lagoon floor beneath it was smooth and showed no traces of roots. So despite being experienced Bushmen, um, neither of them had ever seen anything like this before. Now, did you know that we have an experienced Bushman amongst <laughs> us? Yeah, we've probably got two, you guys. <laughs> um, they had never seen anything like this. And uh, what perplexed these guys the most was Uh, what seemed to be a clear print or impression of whatever George saw in the sky. Uh, The outer perimeter of the floating reeds was thrust down as if indented by a massive inverted saucer. So Albert goes home, and he grabs his camera, snap a couple pics. Grab a couple selfies for the gram. Picks or it didn't happen. Exactly. That's the motto down under. Taking a couple dick pics. So he's snapping photos of uh, this mat of reeds, Um, which has now begun to turn brown on the surface. Now, I'm going to put some of these photos on the Instagram um, so you guys get a a look at them. Now, George reported his experience to Tully Police at 7.30 p.m. that evening. At 7 a.m. the next morning, January 20th, George and Sergeant A.V. Moylan went to the site of the incident. Now, Sergeant Moylan then contacted Townsville Royal Australian Air Force Base by telephone, and Lieutenant Wallace advised Sergeant Moylan that he would forward a pro forma questionnaire for completion by George. By George. So so by this point, uh, the local press has taken an interest. Uh, You know, more and more people come snooping around. Two more nests were discovered, hidden amongst the thick swamp grass, 
and these were a bit smaller than the first. One swirled clockwise, the other counterclockwise. Hmm. That's a mystery. Also found was a completely bare rectangle in the reeds, in which the plants had been uprooted and disappeared from the area. And further investigations underwater, where the original nest was, indicated three large holes in the lagoon floor beneath the nest. Some suggest this indicates the possibility of a tripod landing indentions. It's a big old alien landing. Rob knows all about tripods. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was his nickname in high school. Tripod? Yeah. Now it's just swinging log. Okay, so... In it's total, a dick joke. <laughs> you don't have to say that. <laughs> in total, as many as five other nests, all smaller than the original, were discovered. Uh, some of these had scorched reeds in the center of the nest, and reed samples from the original nest were sent to Brisbane for analysis, but nothing unusual is detected. Other than being part of this mystery nest, the only unusual thing about the reeds was that they turned brown in eight hours. Now, usually reeds uprooted by hand in that type of lagoon typically took three days to turn brown. That's a mystery. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm thinking, still sounds like BS to me, dude. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> okay, so George himself said to uh, journalists at the scene... Had anyone asked me five days ago if I believed in flying saucers, I'd have laughed and thought they were nuts. But now I know better. Well, how does anyone besides this George guy know when exactly these nests were made? Like, he's saying that he just saw it that day, but who's to say that he wasn't out there three days prior making all these things himself by hand? And let's be honest, guys named George are pretty good at writing things about outer space. Bye, George. Bye, George. Hey, this is we're just going off the reports here. If you want to say, hey, George is lying, that's your business. Mm. Mm. So far, I think this guy is just trying to get some attention, you know? Okay, so you think, you know, um, there's been some sightings in the past. Maybe he's trying to spark up the sightings, um, get, get some notoriety going, make his own little Roswell. Get some business for his banana farm. Yeah. There's mm. been a lot of fuckery going on down under. Aliens love bananas. <laughs> that's what it is. Now, so, I mean, that's what we're thinking right off the bat. You think George is just making this whole thing up for fame. T-Bag, what about you? Official narrative guy. What are you thinking? Um... <laughs> Crikey. Crikey. <laughs> I got to hear some more evidence, man. All right. Got to hear some more evidence. I mean, if you if you heard this story from, um, you know, somebody that you knew and trusted, what are you thinking this could be? Well, if I would Is know there it. any way that you could explain what this guy is, says to have seen and these reads this way? If it's someone I know and trust and there's pictures, it would be hard to dispute. Okay. But, I mean, that's something I would want to check out for myself. Okay. For sure. So, you know, all sorts of theories start popping up for this nest. Um, we got helicopters, nesting birds, crocodiles, dogs, secret military devices, reed-eating grubs, yes, yes. and whirlwinds. Um, <laughs> these were amongst the many ideas thrown out. Now, there was never any evidence that there were any helicopters in the area, nor any demonstrated reason for one to be over the lagoon. And the Australian Air Force officials quickly discounted the theory that the nests had been made by helicopters, saying that the depressions left by helicopters, the grass usually ran in an, a counterclockwise direction. The main nest at Tully ran in a clockwise direction. There was also never any evidence of crocodiles making the nest, and analysis of the reeds from the nest showed no trace of reed-eating grubs. Furthermore, there was no known bird that would or could make such a large nest, much less in three hours. No kookaburras. Now, in regards to the UFO sighting, I mean, what are we thinking that could have been? Skeptic Corner. <laughs> now, you think maybe he's just lying? I mean, I feel like it ha if, if 
in fact, he did go make these little nests, then it's got to be a lie just to Give further embellish the story. You know what I mean? Okay. So, the following details are extracted from the Royal Australian Air Force report on the aerial object observed, filled out by Sergeant Moylan and George Pedley. In regards to any aircraft in the vicinity at the time of the sighting, this was unknown but checked by the Royal Australian Air Force Lieutenant Wallace, um, and he confirmed that there were no service or civil aircraft operating in the area at the time of the sighting. The best explanation the Australian Air Force could offer was that the nest was created by a willy-willy, <laughs> a type of small whirlwind known to occur in the area. Willy-willy, or circular wind phenomenon, which flattened the reeds and sucked up the debris to the height of 30 feet, thus forming what appeared to be a flying saucer, moving off and dissipating. So, if you're in Australia and you see a water spout, it's actually a (laughs) willy-willy. Watch out for those willies. But, while the Tully event occurred during the rainy season... January 19th was a sunny day with little or no wind. George described what he saw as a blue-gray object shaped like two saucers face-to-face. This description doesn't sound like a whirling mass of swamp debris, and there was no fallen debris in the area where the dissipation would have occurred. Finally, how does the whirlwind explanation account for the fact that the water was clear when he looked the first time yet covered by this mass of reeds when he looked again three hours later. You know, George himself also said, I've seen wet whirlwinds and dust whirlwinds. If police believe this, let them. I know what I saw. It wasn't a whirlwind. I'll bet you've seen a wet whirlwind. <laughs> now, Willy Willy. Alf McDonald, the stock routes inspector for northern Queensland, who lived in the area since, 19- Alf? since <laughs> 1933, <laughs> He thought the wind vortex theory was unlikely. He said that the district had not had strong whirlwind and indicated that they typically would leave a path. Now, another theory thrown out was by this guy, Trevor James Constable, in his book, The Cosmic Pulse of Life. Now, I kind of read a description on this, and what I got was it was kind of some like New Age bullshit. Um, This guy published a theory in which, like, he, he thought it was a Oregon energy effect, which drew a charge from the lagoon that um, uprooted the reeds and generated the whirling plasma, which created the swirl effect. You know, this guy was super into Oregon energy, which is, I guess, some supposed like life force that was first identified by Wilhelm Reich. You guys ever heard of this Oregon energy? Only in Oregon. Sounds like something out of Star Wars. Okay. So, now guys. (laughs) And I'm honestly asking. I'm honestly telling you guys, this is where things get a little weird. So a further anomaly was found by Kristen Roundland, whose husband helped George with the crop fertilizing. She came across some ground markings that resembled curious tracks in loose plowed soil of an adjoining paddock between the Pedley's banana palms. They led from the direction of the lagoon and extended a short distance into the plowed field. They were shaped like a teardrop, pointed at one end, rounded at the other. Each were about three to four inches in length, two inches across at their widest point, and were spaced out about 12-inch intervals in a straight line. So like somebody's walking, something. Something. Okay. Couple of willy-willies. <laughs> Now, Albert Pennessy, the guy who owned the land, he also told a reporter from the Sydney Australian newspaper that he had been dreaming about UFOs landing on his property for a week. In this report, he said, I get him almost every night, and they were beginning to worry me. I couldn't understand them. It was always the same. This thing is a giant dish. It would come out of nowhere and land nearby, and I would watch it in my dream and get real afraid before it went away. Then on Wednesday morning, about five o'clock, my dog suddenly seemed to go out of his fucking mind, howling like a mad thing and raced off towards the lagoon. Now, this is important in regard to this case because 
More than a decade later, according to information received by Bill Chalker, who wrote the Oz Files, in the town of Murray Upper, which is about 14 miles southwest of the sighting, same direction George reported the UFO flying off in, a young woman was awoken by her father, apparently because he thought the house was on fire. There was a huge orange glow outside. They tried to wake up other family members, but to no avail. Fear started to overcome them, and they ran down the hallway of the house from the light, away from the light. Their next recollection was that they both woke up the next morning, extremely puzzled by what seemed to be a bizarre shared dream. Over breakfast, they heard radio reports of UFO sightings. They realized their memories were not dreams. A circular area of flattened sugarcane was also found near the house. Now keep in mind, it's about a decade later, and um, this guy said in the Oz files, he was like, I, he couldn't really confirm this story. So take that with a grain of salt. But still weird nonetheless. And this connection, what I'm thinking is the Pleiadian. You ever heard of these guys? The Pleiadians? I've heard of it. Never heard of it. So Pleiadians. Um, these are, are it's one of the known races of aliens, um, also known as Nordic aliens. These are like um, big, tall, human-looking aliens, um, white skin, blonde hair, just like we talked. I mean, we saw it at Mount Shasta. We saw it in our California UFOs episode. Um, I believe we talked about them in possibly our Foo Finders episode, Adam. Mm. And, you know, uh, this is kind of actually where this whole new age shit comes from. Like crystals, um, high frequencies, um, chakras, love, all that sort of hippie shit comes from these guys. These guys like love the human race. They want to help us um, get on higher frequencies and basically, these guys can communicate in dreams. They just want to get us higher, man. And whenever they're around, also red and orange uh, glowing light. These are, these are um, common in, in their um, sightings. People who have claimed to have been abducted by them, seen them, that sort of thing. You could say it's lit. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> so fucking bad. Now... Further RAAF investigations into this case noted. During inquiry, the number of local residents stated the report. <laughs> I can't do it. You sound like a British villain. <laughs> Just really Fuck like you. Come on. Fuck you. <laughs> during inquiries, a number of local residents stated that the reported nests are fairly common during the onset of the wet season. So, what's that telling us, guys? Sounds like I'm right. Sounds like, you know, these circles had been seen repeatedly. There are cases uh, predating 1966, and according to a report in Crop Watcher Magazine, issue 14. My favorite magazine, guys. Tully local and UFO researcher Claire Noble confirmed earlier cases had been reported. She later confirmed that there were circles in both the reeds and the sugarcane before 1966, but their importance was never realized until after George's encounter. No one had seen it on TV before. Maybe not. Now, Claire Noble reported on extensive activity that preceded the famous Pedley sighting of 1966. One of the earlier reports came from near Uramo, in September 1959, Max Menzel was driving a tractor when he spotted a brilliant large conical craft, approximately 30 feet long, which seemed to be hovering over the top of the sugarcane, nearly 100 feet away. A nearby house was illuminated in a vivid red and orange light. There was an increased amount of sightings through 1965 including an apparent nighttime landing on the slopes of Mount McKay on November 29th. So, you know, there were cases here and there uh, before 66, and there were a few throughout 66, and there was 
a ton of cases in the future. Um, one of the more interesting ones that I pulled was this letter to the Daily Examiner, um, which is a local paper for the town of Grafton. This one I thought probably the most interesting. Now, Bill Chalker got this letter from the Daily Examiner, and he kind he asked in his book, The Oz Files, hey, if you wrote this letter, let me know. He, he doesn't know who wrote this letter. We don't know where it came from, but interesting case nonetheless. And this letter reads... It was 1966 in Tully, North Queensland. Never done drugs, so was completely straight. Was working on a cane farm and housed in barracks, not in Tully, but nearby. One night, rather than walk to the abolitions block, and dark anyway, decided to water the grass. So he was pissing in the grass. <laughs> He's peeing on the bikes. <laughs> Two bright stars in the distance caught my gaze. They were larger than others, brighter, and appeared to move. Transfixed, I watched further as they did appear to grow bigger, changing colors, then moving, hovering, circling, turning variously, orange, yellow, red, etc., gracefully floating while keeping their balance. Then one drew closer and I could see it had colored lights around the perimeter of a distinct saucer-shaped body. The other stayed a little at a distance. It appeared that when the disc moved clockwise, the ring of lights could go the opposite direction. It was amazing. Red, orange, yellow, green lights, fluctuating too. Some colors were bigger than others. Beautiful. A time passed and I found myself standing in front of my door at the barracks. I did not walk there. Where had the time gone? The main craft had come closer to me that night. A mesmerizing, beautiful sight. Next thing I found I was inside the craft. These beings were all of Caucasian appearance, tall and dressed in blue. They dressed me in blue also, then offered me a couch to sit, lie on, whatever I wanted. They communicated without words, telepathically, and were truly very courteous. I noticed the interior had no angles and no seams. It was softly but well lit. They began to tell me things. Here are some, remember this is 1966. They said there would be healing patches to assist healing to place on people's skin. They also showed me a healing method where they placed the patient under a white cloth, while above them is suspended a circle of spectrum lights in similar colors to their disc ship. They explained how the imbalance of illness caused color gaps, that the lights restored by filling the color gaps. It could turn either way, clockwise or anti-clockwise, and move freely across the whole body area. One was the main communicator, others busied themselves variously. Some sat nearby to listen, then went about their business. I asked about their energy system, and they said I would find the answers in the face of a sunflower. I spent my years puzzling this, till decades later I walked past a little country bookshop and was drawn to a book about the Apollo 13 mission in the window. I went in, opened it randomly, and there was a sunflower, a black and white photo of the face of a sunflower. It was there to describe a mathematical ratio for spirals by Daniel Bernoulli, and I recalled that the blue friends also said their energy was derived from air and water. Their demeanor was very warm and friendly, not at all threatening. The following evening I went out to look again and a silvery, cylinder-shaped object hovered upright nearby as if just following me, but I was tired and went to bed. It was about seven or eight feet high, never touching the ground just about a foot or two above it, completely silent. The next day I was surprised to find a long meandering path of dried grass, about 18 inches to 2 foot wide, where the upright hovering object had been. Since then there have been patches for healing and I did get to look into the face of the sunflower, a scientific example of spirals in nature. Air and water, it was the most wonderful experience, I actually missed them. What are our thoughts there, what are we thinking? Figure hell, I like sunflowers. Maybe you guys will like them too. <laughs> Possibly these uh, Pleiadian aliens. Possibly a good storyteller. Possibly, um, maybe some something's going on down under in Tali. People getting abducted, showing sunflowers. <laughs> 
Hey, just look in the face of a sunflower. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the aliens themselves had Australian accents. <laughs> um, that would make them seem awful friendly, though. Hey, here's... Hey, he's a sunflower. <laughs> I can't... <laughs> That's your Australian accent. Check out our healing patches. <laughs> this is a didgeridoo. This is what happens when there's a color gap. <laughs> wow, they're racist aliens. Now, okay. So what's our, our consensus? You know, without this letter, the whole Tully um, nest. I mean, what are we thinking? BS, Rob, still BS. Thinking fully BS, this guy George made it up. Yeah, still pretty BS to me. Okay. Now, what specifically, like what just, what makes it stand out as BS to you? I mean, the only thing that makes it seem not BS is the fact that the reeds were pulled up and there's no signs of roots or anything. But mm-hmm. other than that, mm-hmm. everything just seems a little iffy to me. There's just these fucking circles. <laughs> that is literally the proof circles of reeds i want to see a picture of a fucking ufo well he didn't he didn't have his camera mate well he had it when he was taking all the damn selfies by the damn because he circle. went and got penacee it was penacee's <laughs> camera and he went and ran up to the house grabbed the camera and the didgeridoo some vegemite sandwiches for the boys <laughs> well i think you know this is just his handiwork Okay. Just trying to make a name for himself. So you think these guys went in, pulled up all the roots, smoothed over the clay and soil, um, made these footprints, made scorched centers. Okay, maybe not the footprints. (laughs) (laughs) But everything else. But everything else. Yeah. Okay. Folding reeds down into a 25-foot circle is, you know, not that big of a deal. Uprooted. What else do these guys got to do? Pick bananas. He probably wasn't even doing that. He's driving around a damn tractor. <laughs> okay, all right. So we've got our Scully. Um, just doesn't take this gentleman's word for it. Just thinks that he's lying. Now, Adam, what are we thinking? See, I think you're going to be the molder here because after watching that video where they're stomping down the reeds with the wood on their shoe. Yeah. I'm kind of skeptical. Like, and you guys know, like, if you go back and listen to like the very first Alien episode that we did, I literally saw... Aliens right outside of our my house. Well, yeah, this guy's seen more UFOs than both of us combined. Right, right. But seeing that video, like I, I don't want to call BS. I don't want to be the Rob here. But I mean, watch the video. Let me know what you guys think. Well, now keep in mind this isn't a field like those hoaxes. Right. Um, and I and I don't want to squash somebody else saying like, no, dude, like I saw them. Like I want to believe. Okay, so two skeptics on this one. Now, you can argue, hey, maybe this guy's making it up. Um, You know, the sightings beforehand, what are we thinking there? They come out after maybe more people are trying to get fame, trying to get some notoriety, 15 minutes, get in the paper or something. You You know, know, if there had been like a numerous amount of sightings that same day that he saw him, maybe I would be a little bit more susceptible to believe him. But at this point, you know... Can't call it. Well, there's a few from, you know, the years prior, and a few come out after. But, according to Claire Noble, there had been aboriginal stories spanning many years from Tully Gorge, Murray River, and the mountain areas around Tully. Apparently, aboriginal folklore suggested similar occurrences from earlier times. Now, Tully itself is nestled between Mount Tyson to the immediate northwest and Mount McKay a little further to the east. It is from the peak of Mount Tyson. This is Mount Tyson. (laughs) (laughs) Mickey Mickey Mouse. Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) This is Mike Tyson. (laughs) (laughs) Like Mickey Mouse, not Mike Tyson. That's what like when Michael Scott does it. That's what I thought of. So it is from the peak of Mount Tyson that something spawned the aboriginal legend of the Chikabuna. The peak is recorded as the landing place of the Chikabuna. And the legend goes... 
The Chica Puna was a spirit in the shape of a man and was always sighted as rushing through the air. He emitted a strange blue light and was binding to look upon. When he took off from the earth, there was a frightening bang and a roaring of rushing noise. He ate glowing red coals and only came to earth at certain places. The three known places in the area were Gudarella Hill on the Murray River, the large rock at the back or western side of Mount Tyson, and another rock on the Davidson Valley. The creature was frightful to behold and had a long, hideous nose. There is no evidence that the Chikabunda have done any harm. He merely instilled great fear in the, the hearts of the beholders. Now, Jack Marietta, a respected Giringan tribal elder, described an encounter with the Chikabuna he experienced back in 1932 when he was nine years old. And he says... Our mothers and grandmothers used to tell us not to go too far from camp in case the devil man came calling. Devil men, we aboriginals call them, or chikabunas. White people call them UFOs. And if you get caught by one, our grandmothers told us you will die. One night, I was with my friends and we wandered too far from the camp to the river. We were playing in the dunes when this great big ball of light, so bright you had never seen such a light, came flying down from the sky above us. It lit up the whole river and then zoomed down low along the banks. It was looking for us. My friends were yelling, run, run, and we took off as fast as we could back towards camp and our mothers. You don't want to get caught by the devil man. Sounds like a great song. Now, what are we thinking there, guys? Boom, Aboriginal tales. I mean, you guys is as good as anybody. I mean, we saw this, again, Mount Shasta. We saw this with um, Proctor Valley. You know, these Aboriginal tales, just like the Native American tales of North America, these are going to date further back than uh, any cases here. So... Does that change anyone's perspective on these sightings? Maybe, hey, something going on in Tully, right? I mean, we all know that Aboriginals and Native Americans cannot tell a lie. This that's is a, true. That's a fact. <laughs> okay. Now, is he extraterrestrial? I don't know. Hey, he says white people call them UFOs. So, uh, Chica Buna, look can, out. Can we start calling them that from now on? <laughs> yeah, we should, We actually Bunas. should. We should just we should get a shirt we should get shirts that have a UFO on them and just say that. Chikabuna. <laughs> Devil man? <laughs> no. Chikabuna. Devil man on the back with a number. There we go, like a jersey. Uh wrap this one up. Devil man came calling. <laughs> Nest activity occurred at Horseshoe Lagoon during subsequent years including 69, 72, 75, 81 and 87. By the 1990s, Albert Pennessy was indicating there had been 22 nests at his lagoon since 1966. However, none were as compelling with regard to an explicit UFO connection as George's original find in 1966. While hoaxing and misinterpretation was suggested in some of the later finds, these allegations are not applicable to the original nest. Now, this incident launched Tully into the pages of UFO lore for decades to come. And in this day and age, Tully has become a famous UFO tourist attraction. It's Australia's equivalent to Roswell, New Mexico. And in all, the 66 Tully UFO physical trace case still stands as a classic example of the impressive physical dimensions of the UFO phenomenon. 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 So there you have it, guys. The uh, Tully UFO nest case. Um, the nest phenomenon. Um, the nest. What am I looking for here? Chikabuna. The nest. Nestra terrestrials. Yeah, actually, <laughs> um, you know, 
David Beach, uh, if you're out there listening, maybe. I know we actually have like maybe two listeners in Australia, but uh, I was trying to get in connection with David because I wanted to see like if the Air Force was like if UFOs were like treated like they are here, you know, especially back in the day. Like, was the Air Force in Australia as secretive about UFOs as the United States Air Force? You know, that sort of thing. I don't think so, because from that report that the, the, I forget the lady's name that did the report on the Tully case, but she was saying that the Air Force, all the information that they gathered from it was released to the public, whereas a lot of the stuff that happened with Roswell wasn't released for years and years, you know? Yeah, see, that's the sense I got, too. I did a little bit of research just trying to see, um, you know, if it was treated the same, and I think um, they, they had, it was similar to Project Blue Book, like they would open cases on them, but... After a while, like, I mean, nowadays, I don't think they have any cases on them, or if they do, it's definitely uh, more under wraps, you know. Well, hey, it could yeah. be the Chikabuna. Shout out to our Australian listeners. Um, send us some UFO sightings if you have any, or let us know, um, like, what's the UFO culture like in Australia? That's kind of what I was trying to get a sense of. I feel like they also might have more information on their sightings, like we were saying. Exactly, exactly. But who knows? Um, you know, that's just further proving that this was, in fact, a real sighting. Um, you know, you skeptics can go ahead and shove the UFOs right up your asses. Um, <laughs> aliens, 100% real. And um, hey other man, th- I'm not discrediting aliens when I say that I'm skeptical to believe this. There's a whole Blink-182 song about it. What you so hear you know is all true. hearsay. Hey. Hey, there's something in the back room. Um, on that, guys, we are getting out of here. Thank you so much for listening. And um, other than that... Uh, feel free to hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns. As always, you know, it's podcastfromouterspace at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up in those DMs at podcastfromouterspace on the IG. So, uh, as always, thanks for listening, guys. Oh, and um, I did want to say happy Veterans Day to all our veterans out there. Mm. Uh, happy late Veterans Day. Salute. And probably happy early Thanksgiving to our listeners out there. Uh, We are probably going to take a week off for the holiday season. I know we all have some traveling to do. And then we are going to be back with a very special episode for you guys. So stay tuned for that. And uh, stay safe out there, guys. Yeah, watch out for the Chickabunas. As always, we love interacting with you guys. So let us know what you want to hear next. I would personally like to know... Maybe people down under can tell us about some Australian cryptids. Keep us posted. And uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. He just-